Welcome to Bench Talk, the week in science. My name is Dave Robinson. And I'm Ashley Best. You're listening to WFMP Louisville, 106.5 FM. This show's about bringing science to the people. We'll be bringing you weekly updates on new research that is important to all of us and celebrating evidence-based policy. We've scoured the library stacks for interesting articles, climbed the hill to stay informed on science policy, and performed some experiments of our own. We're here as a conduit of all things science, so let's get started. Dave Robinson here. Today's show is a bit unusual. It's our first interview, and we're going to start with a bang. Distinguished biologist Robert W. Korn of Bellarmine University here in Louisville, Kentucky. Now, the first few minutes of this interview might contain a little bit of background noise, but don't worry about it. It goes away after a couple of minutes. Let's get right to it. It's my pleasure today to interview one of my science heroes, Dr. Robert W. Korn. Dr. Korn's now Professor Emeritus of Biology at Bellarmine University. He taught at Bellarmine for 36 years, I think, retired about 15 years ago, and is a plant developmental biologist. Welcome, Bob. Well, thank you. I'm glad to be here. <laughs> now, you're interested in plants. Yes. How did you first get interested in plants? Well, it started in high school. I was exposed to a life cycle, particularly of algae, and that really turned me on. And algae are plants of, of sorts. You were born in Wisconsin. Right, in Milwaukee. So you're more of a big city kid. Oh, definitely. Yeah, who got interested in plants. Yes. And then how did you get interested in science? Well, I think I just was interested in solving physical problems. Biology is physical. I, I used to catch fireflies, as most kids did, and tadpoles, <laughs> and... Uh, to sort of keep them alive, sort of, you know, have a degree of respect for nature. One of the interesting things is my mother appreciated what I was trying to do with certain things, and so she says, you need a laboratory. Why don't you just take my pantry? You can have that as your lab. Her kitchen. In the kitchen, the pantry, (laughs) which was a separate room. Yeah, where you have all the canned goods and everything. That's right. (laughs) So that was my lab. From one of the things I collected from ponds, were little invertebrate animals called fairy yeah. shrimp. And uh, just to keep them alive, I tried to see how I could keep guppies alive. And back learn then, to respect nature and not kill it. Back then, you probably just had a magnifying glass. <laughs> That's about it. Yeah. <laughs> and how old were you around that time? Oh, I was probably about 10 to yeah. 12, something like that. Yeah. You know, back then, back in the, the 40s and the 50s, uh, there wasn't much organization in knowledge, in knowledge and in uh, education, and you had to sort of do everything on your own. You didn't have an Internet that gave you answers right away. You had to sort of figure it out yourself. And I remember I used to ask questions, why do people die? Why do people get old? The only way I could resolve that answer is to think it out myself. People didn't talk about that stuff very much back then. And uh, I would take long, long walks just thinking about what might be an answer to why people die, why people wear clothes, (laughs) 
you know, you ask all kinds of questions, and then you sort through what kind of information is there that answers. Yeah, oh boy, that's a real sign of a future scientist, don't you think? Just I asking think so. these basic questions. Because back Why? then, you didn't have the internet that gave you these answers. <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah. Kids today are, are almost too spoiled. They, they don't have to get answers by themselves. They can find others who have answered this who are specialists. Yeah. Even though I, I never had those specialists <laughs> that gave me the answers. You had to think about it, conceptualize it yourself. Sure. Where did you get your bachelor's degree? My bachelor's degree was homegrown. It was at Marquette, which was in Milwaukee. What was your major? Uh, botany. And then after Marquette? And then I went to Indiana for my doctorate, Indiana University in Bloomington. And uh, then I had two years at MIT in Boston as a postdoc, trying to learn some molecular biology at the time, but I got more fascinated with the computers there. And then what did you do your doctorate in? My doctorate was in a uh, the study of a single-cell alga, and uh, I got mutations of it induced by ultraviolet light to try to understand the form that the little plant takes. But it had no future, you know, when I look in terms of what other people were doing, they were not interested in this at all. And I figure there's not much of a future in this approach, so <laughs> I got out as quick as possible. So then you did your postdoc at MIT. What, what was that subject? Well, I was going to be studying RNA synthesis in the pea seedling. And this this was the very early days of molecular biology. Yeah, like most people didn't know what they were doing. And the techniques that I was using came from some guy in the next floor who was uh, doing it on animals. And he found out that he wasn't getting really the results he had hoped. He thought he was studying RNA and he was really isolating polysaccharides. And I just said, I can't handle this kind of stuff. I'm going to get out of here. <laughs> you know, the, the people in molecular biology were mostly chemists who really knew how to do basic uh, chem lab stuff. And I was a biologist. Yeah, you weren't really interested in it. And now what year was that? What range of years is that? This would be 60 to 65. Wow, early 60s. Yeah, I mean, it was molecular biology was exciting, but... It was raw, and there were so many retractions of papers <laughs> because, you know... The False test. starts and... That's right. Do you regret that? Because, of course, now molecular oh, no. biology is this huge No, no, no. I, I, I find, if, if I were to go back to molecular biology, I find small RNA a very interesting subject. Yes, people are now realizing these small RNAs are doing so much. That's right. Yeah, so it was at that point that you decided to study higher plants. Yes. What was your first higher plant? Oh, uh, I think it was plain old geranium. Yeah. <laughs> and I was studying the arrangement of uh, stomates <clears throat> using computer models. So I learned how to use the computer at MIT. Yeah, that's what's interesting about your career is a lot of emphasis on math. And, of course, that calls up computers if you're going to do anything. Right work with a lot of data. Did you like math as a child? Yeah, it was. Um, I had an absolutely excellent math teacher in high school, Mr. Ball, and he really put it to us. We really learned the math. And also, entrance to college, I scored in the lower 5% in English. 
Oh. The <laughs> but I scored in the upper 2% in math. How about that? Wow. So, and I could explain that, but that's a long story. I've read many of your articles. You're a good writer now. Well. Something happened. Well, what it was is that <laughs> I, they, they said, what are the parts of speech of the following words? Oh, yeah. I said, well, I got to see how they're used. And I didn't see the paragraph where they were used. <laughs> so that, that almost did me in. Yeah, because we learn by examples That's rather right. than just memorizing. When did you start using computers? Well, the, the, the first paper was when I was at MIT. I, I applied it to an ELGA, a very simple ELGA that was multicellular uh, and uh, worked out very nice. I got a lot of good, and I still am getting references to that early paper of 66. Huh. Wow. Yeah. And was the computer program back then Fortran? Well, it was. What did they use? Simpler than that was BASIC. Okay, BASIC, yeah. And today it's Visual BASIC. Now, this is back in the 60s. Did you yes. have the little punch cards? Yes, and I, <laughs> I well, I used uh, punch tape. Oh, and, I, and the wow. computer I used here at Bellarmine was a GE. It was, it was a mainframe computer. Huh. Yeah, so um, you came... I see. After your postdoc, did you come straight to Bellarmine? Yes. I was looking for a very good school where <clears> you can do research and you got good students. Yeah. And the students were absolutely excellent. And I like the freedom we have here, the, the oh. scholarly freedom. If you're Whatever interested you in something. If you want to write poetry, you can write poetry. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm and trying to think what life was like back there before computers. You were probably one of the first people on campus using a computer. I had the first computer on campus. And you also had, yeah, then finally you got one? Yes, through a, through a research grant. Some sort of IBM? No, it was uh, Hewlett Packard. Oh, HP. <laughs> yeah, it's the same computer I, I used from the grant that they use in Star Wars to do the Star Wars movie. How about that? Yeah. <laughs> So you're still studying plant development. Oh, yes. That, that, that's an endless task. Yeah. What kind of things are you doing now? Well, there's a new area that's developing in anatomy, and it's, it's called modeling. And uh, it, it's explaining what you see by what it came from. In other words, you're studying the development of a plant from one stage to the next. And so what you do is you write a computer program as the first stage and it produces the next stage as a result of the printout. When you're modeling, you're selecting traits to study that have consequences in mm -hmm. later development. Interesting. And therefore, it becomes a more objective way of describing. So if I looked at you and I said, what are the most important traits? It would be very subjective. Hmm. But if I were able to follow you from where you came and so forth, it would be a more objective set of traits that I would see you. And I think modeling is, is, has improved the way we describe what's going on. And it's very exciting to do it that way. Plants have uh, polarity. There's a, a south pole and north pole to, to plants' cells. And as a consequence, you can use th those features for how you can build later features. It's called, you know, in the sense of pre-planning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's something that emerges comes from something already there, but changes. And so you have a series of changes. A changes to B, which changes to C, which changes to D. 
and uh, you, you're not pulling anything out of the sky. You're using traits already there as your starting point, and you got to have that. And generally, what you're starting with is the cell. The cell is the basis at all levels. Yeah, it's where all synthesis occurs in the cells. All molecules are synthesized at the cell level. So that's generally where you can start. Yeah. And do you think development from a single corn cell would be, say, an apical bud versus a starfish embryo? Do you think animals and plants are following the same rules? Yes. I I think uh, the metabolic pathways indicate this is the case. But uh, I... uh, as I said, it's still fairly new, and you're trying to develop some kind of overall pattern and set of rules to follow. Yeah. How far these rules go seems to be something that you're going to have to figure out yourself. Yeah. I think there's a renaissance in that area, though, because of molecular biology, all these developmental mutants they've discovered. Oh, yes. I, I wonder if the research you've done is this preliminary research is really helping current molecular in several in, in people. several papers uh, recently uh, that I've done. I have shown that my approach is compatible with the molecular approach, but I think uh, there, there's still a big gap. Yeah, big gap. Because yeah. a lot of the mutants don't make any sense. They are real, but why should there be this mutant? I noticed in your papers, you're typically you're the only author. You're yeah. sole author of most of your papers. Right. Do you prefer that? Does that frustrate you? You are at a smaller college where there's well, not a lot of people working in your area. It, it does both. It, it, it's frustrating and yet it's good because uh, you can discover things that people haven't done. Like I discovered a new tissue, which is a type of cell that is found at the edge of leaves. We have known that there are types of cells at the top of surface of leaves and at the bottom surface but the, what about the edge? Nobody has even mentioned that. And there is a special set of cells just for edges. Hmm. And I've discovered that's my only di- real discovery. And are, is that your research discovery that you're most proud of? Yeah, I think that that, that will... It, it's gotten into one or two textbooks already. Yeah. And when you can get your work into that's, a textbook... That's nice. Yeah. Many years ago, you were nominated for a uh, Kentucky Academy of Science Award, and there were some nominating letters. And one of the letters in support of you getting this award was that you reminded this other researcher of Charles Darwin, because Charles Darwin worked alone. Gregor Mendel worked alone. Science is so big now. You have yes, yes. you typically see 5, 10, 30 authors on a paper. And it's it's grown tremendously, and I think uh, in ecology and in molecular biology. But I think there's a debate. There's a lot of people that feel that much good research can still be done by one or two people. Yeah. <laughs> working. On. You know, it, it, National Science Foundation likes to support big science because mm-hmm. there's a lot of glitz there, whereas one or two people that that's hardly interesting what they're doing. Yeah. But it may be very fundamental work. I think so. You sort of follow the money, as they say, and you follow it in big science. Yeah. But sometimes following the money, I just wonder if it leads researchers to not take risks. You know, they're going to be careful. they got to be. They've got to publish. That's why research at a small school is very fine. 
as a consequence. You can you can do work that uh, people at big schools won't touch because it's too risky, as you yeah. said. I remember one time we were having lunch and you were looking at the, it, the you had a banana, it was kind of going bad. You had brown spots on the skin and you, <laughs> you were speculating about the mathematics of that blotching, of that splotching. Yes. At a big university, they just don't have the time. I'm curious whether they just lose that wonderment about the world. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. I have a friend at Berkeley who um, says the young scientists in botany, he said, they're into for making a reputation and money. Yeah. And he says, and if they didn't have that to go for, they probably would be realtors. Yeah. <laughs> like that's the goal is just be able to make a living, have make, a career. Make a good living. Make a, <laughs> make a good living. Yeah. Well, I, I, that's I, not what science is about. The fellow who discovered the hormone kinetin, Carlos Miller, told me one time, he said he wanted to become famous but he's got no personality at all. And you can go into science and become famous with no personality. Yeah, and it worked. And it he worked. was a Bloomington. Yes. You are listening to Bench Talk, the Week in Science, here on WFMP 106.5 here in Louisville, Kentucky. In a minute, we'll get back to the second half of our interview with Professor Emeritus Robert W. Korn of Bellarmine University. Hold on. Now, what's your favorite part of the research process? I think being able to have the freedom of just coming in the lab and working. Yeah. The the results are nice, but uh, as I said, like I discovered that the special cells on the edges of leaves, that's kind of satisfying, but it's not why you do it. I mean, if you got really no results, you still would do it because... It's the joy of just doing, yeah. being able to do things, the freedom to do it. Yeah, that's what I admire about you because you haven't, you've been retired for 16 years, so I guess that means you're really not getting paid, but you're here every day. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> and even if your health is not 100%, you're here. Yes, yes. What gets you up in the morning? Looking forward to seeing what's going to be found. And, you know, they, they say that uh, the most difficult jobs in the world are computer programmers because you live with failures so readily. <laughs> and you've got to be able to be the kind of person who can take failure and just put it aside and continue on. Most people aren't built that way. They give up and go to something else. Yeah, yeah you fall off the horse, you just get back on, try something different. Right, and you just don't give up. What's the most difficult part of being a researcher? Not knowing whether you're right or wrong. Because <laughs> the last thing you want to do is send something into uh, the literature that is wrong. Yeah. You want to be careful about what you do. Yeah. 
One of our goals on this show is to encourage young people to go into yeah. science. Do yeah. you have any advice for young I, people? I think uh, what I went through is, is I was a collector, collected things. I never understood why I liked to collect. And I think uh, you know, Charles Darwin was quite a collector yes. of beetles. But I think what it does is it encourages you to organize things. You know, if uh, I've told some students, just make a leaf collection. See how many mm -hmm. different kind of leaves you can get. And if you can put them in some degree of order. And I think science is ordering reality in the sense that it makes sense. So I think be a collector, even if it's coins, you know, or whatever. Yeah. Collect. Yeah. So I was like that as a child, too. I just collected feathers and bones and yeah. weird rocks. And you put it in order. And you have a cigar box and you put all this stuff in there. Sure. <laughs> I don't know if children do that anymore. I, uh, I, I don't know. Maybe, not many people ever did, <clears throat> I think, but I, I think they still may be around. Yeah. I wonder if that would be a sign to a parent that their child might be interested in biology or science. If well, they're collecting things from nature. I, I think another thing, too, is that science is a lonely business. In most academics, it's a lonely business. Whether you're, whether you're writing a novel, or you're collecting leaves, or studying RNA, mm -hmm. you know, uh, there's a degree of orderliness that you, you need to find. I think uh, a, a student will discover that on their own, their interest, as you just pointed out. Mm -hmm. And then as they get into higher levels of education, like high school and so forth, it becomes more serious. Yeah. In s some respects, it is a lonely pursuit. Just right. like athleticism, though, when you're an athlete, training and everything. Very lonely. Well, it's like medicine. And you know, I told yeah. students, if you like to be with people, go into medicine. If you like to be left alone, go into science. <laughs> Well, that brings up, if you weren't a biologist, what other career do you think you might have pursued? I find fascinating the idea of a city. It's very much like an organism. It takes in hmm. energy, it has waste, it has internal communications. And I find that the city as an organism, maybe I'm still a biologist, but I would become a social scientist. Huh, like an urban planner? Yes, or urban... right, right. Interesting. I think cities are a very dynamic situation. Yeah, and you're right. It is like a organism. And, of course, that brings up the Gaia hypothesis. Do you think the whole planet is this supra-organism? Yeah, well, I, I don't go that far. <laughs> That's interesting. And I think you said, like an organism, whereas some people say it is an organism. It doesn't reproduce, really. <laughs> Maybe asexually. It spouts out suburbs. But I <laughs> now, this show is designed for a general audience. Do you have any advice for the public about science or anything? Well, the one thing is, is I you know, did with my four children is I wanted to inculcate with them a sense of tolerance. Listen to things that you don't agree with hmm. to find out about them. Mm -hmm. In other words, know your enemy. Would a scientist listen to a program on TV about astrology? Absolutely, because you want to find out what makes that system tick. Yeah. What doesn't mean you have to agree with it. And I think most people will have input of things they agree with and not with things they don't. Therefore, I think they're making a mistake. You've got to know both sides of the picture. Yeah, it's hard to refute something if you don't know what it is. But precisely. So you're suggesting people be very critical thinkers. 
one of the funny things is they did a study of which group of people know the most about religion. And it turned out that atheists are the ones because huh. they've got to know these religions to defute them. To realize it's not for them. or Right. <laughs> but I, I, I think, you know, gaining a sense of tolerance because in, in science there's constantly new ideas coming out and you've got to learn to be very flexible. Yeah, and you have to be open-minded to a new concept and then if you don't like it, you need to ask why. You know, what That's is it right. about That's it that right. I don't like? Not just your feelings, but like in terms of concrete evidence against that theory. Or Right. Did your parents wish you had pursued a different career? Yeah. My father said, you know, when I was on my doctorate and I was telling him what I was doing, he says, why don't you study tomatoes and see if you can make longer shelf life of it? <laughs> Something I more said, practical. That's for agronomists. I'm not that. <laughs> I couldn't get him to understand why you can study something for its sake alone without any having any practical application. Interesting. But my parents were very, very liberal in the sense of do what you want to do, just do as well as you can. Yeah, and that you have. Well, congratulations for a, a long and very successful career. It's been wonderful. And thank you for I've doing this blessed. interview. <laughs> I've been blessed. Thank you. was Professor Emeritus of Biology at Bellarmine University, Robert W. Korn. We'll try to post a couple of Dr. Korn's research articles on our Facebook page if you're curious about the sort of stuff that he's been up to. Thanks a lot, Dr. Korn. you're listening to today is by Antonio Vivaldi. It's The Four Seasons, published in 1725 and recorded in 2011 by John Harrison and the Wichita State University Chamber Players. We're listening to Concerto Number no. 1, Spring, the First Movement. This public domain recording is available on freemusicarchive.org. that's the show this week. Thank you for listening to Bench Talk, The Week in Science. We think the world is a fascinating place, and science is a good way to explore it. Science truly empowers all of us. If you want to learn more about the show, go to our Facebook page. Just search for Bench Talk, two words on Facebook. You can also email us at benchtalkradio at gmail.com. That's one word benchtalkradio at gmail.com Now all of our episodes are podcasted on SoundCloud so just visit the station's website at www.forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program archives that's 
forwardradio.org to listen to any of our old episodes. If you live outside of the Louisville broadcast area, you can still listen to us on live stream at that same website, www.forwardradio.org. This show is broadcast on WFMP LP 106.5 FM every Monday at 7.30 p.m. That's Eastern Time, 11.30 a.m. every Tuesday, and 7.30 a.m. every Wednesday. Thank you for listening to WFMP LP 106.5 FM, your grassroots, volunteer-run, listener-supported community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky where there is still a little room for evidence-based rational analysis. Thank you.